Hello everyone, and welcome to episode four of Fireside Chats. In this episode, I speak with one of my friends and one of our Roosevelt group members and my academic brother here in St. Andrews, Mauricio, about his article in our winter 2023 new and printed publication. Mauricio's article is all about his semester in Paris and what he learned and witnessed while he was there. We cover the cost of living and energy crises, what it was like to observe Paris's response to the war in Ukraine, something that Mauricio tells us about, which is called the G3, the Franco-German partnership, and Paris under the presidency of Macron. I had a really great conversation with Mauricio, and although I already do love Paris, I learned way more about it than I had before. You can read Mauricio's article for yourself on our website at roosevelt-group.org in PDF form, And as always, be sure to check out our social media on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn at The Roosevelt Group. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Hi, Mauricio. Hi, Ward. Very excited to be here. Excited to have you on. Um, So to get us started, can you tell us where you're from, what year you are, and what you study? So I'm from Monterrey, Mexico. So that's in the northeast of Mexico. Uh, I'm a third year and I'm studying international relations and art history. Nice. Um, And then I always start with a couple fun questions. Or I usually just do one, but for you, I did two. Oh, nice. So the first is, what is something that you've read recently that you really loved? So this is a book that... uh, I've recommended it to friends. I actually sent it to a friend. It's called Metropolis, and it's about the city. It's about the idea of of the polis of of, of human civilization through the city, um, and it's one of the best uh, history books that I read. Very engaging. Um, so yeah, Metropolis. Nice. It, wait, you say the city? What city? So it's all. It's the concept of the city. So it goes back to um, the ancient civilizations and the. In, in the Near East, the Middle East, you know, how uh, the first human settlements started to, like, coalesce and become formal cities. And it goes all the way through to, like, the cities that we see today. And each chapter kind of goes through a different side of the city. So there's a really fun chapter called Gastropolis that talks about, like, the history of food in the cities and how cities just develop uh, great food, great um, restaurants. Uh, they bring in, you know, and, and, and kind of, like, the resources that you need for that, the ingredients um, so yeah. Cool. So it's like kind of a meta narrative about cities, would you say? Exactly. Yeah. Cool. And, and it connects with, you know, international relations, urbanism, uh, different areas, history. Mm-hmm. And it's called, wait, sorry, what's it called again? So it's called Metropolis. Okay. By who? Um, give me a sec. <laughs> We're always Googling things on this show. Yes. Well, the thing is, because I, 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 I've, I've sent this book, uh, I sent it to my roommate from high school. I sent it as like a Christmas present. Mm-hmm. Um, That's a good gift. Because I was like, you need to read this. Because he's 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 working in development right now. He's basically building a city. And I was like, this is going to be perfect for you. Mm-hmm. Um But yeah, I can't I can't pull the name of the author. I don't know why it's not. Okay. Well, that's okay. Um, sounds like a great book. So the second fun question I have for oh, you. Oh, sorry. Yeah, it's yeah. Ben Wilson. Ben Metropolis, Wilson. A, city, a History of the City, Humankind's Greatest Invention by Ben Wilson. Okay, yes. cool. I'll, I'll add that to my list. That sounds really interesting. 
Um, okay, so my second fun question is, so your article, which we'll get into, was about your semester abroad in Paris. So what was your favorite spot that you discovered during your time in Paris? It could be a restaurant, a park bench, a nightclub, a cafe, a street corner, anything. So there's actually a very special place where I love to take my friends. It's the terrace at the Printemps. It's it's basically a department store near the opera in Saint-Lazare. And it it's a really cool bar. It's a It has very affordable drinks, and it has sweeping views of the city. Mm. And the thing is, tourists don't know about it. Locals don't know about it. I found it by accident. And it was perfect because I could just go up there and get, like, one drink, and I would stay there studying all day. And it has these, like, beautiful views of, like, the Eiffel Tower, the opera, like, the whole city. And so if you want, you know, an affordable drink and amazing views, because usually in Paris you have to pay a lot for a view like that, that's basically, like, your best option. Wow. That's amazing. We will remember that. That's a great tip for anybody who listens. Um, Okay. So let's get into your article. You recently wrote an article for our um, most recent new annals titled... Paris Beacon in the Night, which tells of your semester abroad last fall in Paris at Sciences Po. So how was your semester? What, what Rate it out of 10. Uh, I would say 11. And this is a joke that I have with, with some of my friends. I said that I had anti-Paris syndrome because <laughs> and, and, and this happens, you know, sometimes you go to the city and, and it happens to some tourists that it's not what they expected and they feel like it's dirty and people are rude. But for me, I guess I just got really lucky because everyone was extremely nice to me. Like the weather was great. The city was very clean. I basically felt like I was in a movie all the time. Wow. That's amazing. That's a great way to go through life. Um, What was like a day in the life for you? It it really depended. Um, So I had a class every day and classes are usually two hours. At Sciences Po, um, IR students will take like six six courses. Um, So I basically had like one every day. And so I would get up really early. I had the habit of getting up at like 6 a.m., which I usually never do that. But for some reason in Paris, yeah, (laughs) I just got up really early and I would, you know, get my croissant, get my tea. Um, You know, I I would either get it like a like a corner shop or I would just uh, do it at my apartment. And so in the morning I would go to Sciences Po and the first thing in the morning is awesome because they had this like newsstand with a lot of newspapers and print. And so I could get a copy of like the New York Times for that day. And it's mm-hmm. completely free. Wow. Students can just go grab and get it. Um, so you got to get there early too so that you can get a copy because they just fly, yeah. right? And, and so then I'd get my copy and I would read up on it. Um, I would go to class. I usually had a class in the morning. Um, and then in the evening, I would always try to go to either a different part of the city or a museum that I hadn't been to. Uh, I would say I, I really like going to the Musée d'Alsace to like to read, to study, mm-hmm. um, and also the Bibliothèque Mazarin, uh, which is a beautiful Baroque library very close to Sciences Po as well. Uh, that is basically like the dark academia dream of libraries. I guess wow. Paris's answer to the King James Library, <laughs> and that's where I would study. And then later in the evening, I would go with my friends, and we would go basically cafe hopping so it's kind of what Hemingway calls the movable feast Mm -hmm. so we would all meet at a cafe and like get a drink and then move to the next cafe and get another drink and we'd just be like just chatting hanging out until the late hours of the night Mm -hmm. that's like the French version of a pub crawl exactly yes Yeah, it French sounds popcorn. more elegant than what we might do here in St. Andrews. It's it's well, I guess it's just a different form, but the content is very it's very similar. Mm-hmm. 
Um, so for those of you who don't know how studying abroad in St. Andrews works, you can only study abroad in certain places depending on your degree. So what were the other places you could have studied and how did you decide on going to Paris? So, well, for me, Paris was the dream and that was my first choice because I'd been taking French for a long time and it was always my dream to study in Paris. I never actually thought about how I was going to make that happen. But when I came to St. Andrews and that became an option, it was just too perfect. Uh, but, you know, I actually, I was really interested in Renmin in China. Uh, I guess it's near Shanghai and it's a great university. I wanted to get to Asia as well. I'm really interested in East Asian studies. Uh, so if there hadn't been the COVID situation, perhaps I would have, you know, put that on my list as well. Um, I don't know. I also applied to study abroad for art history, but I wasn't selected. So I was interested in going to Leiden as well. I was thinking the Netherlands was an interesting place to be because even though I went to Paris for IR, you know, it was very enriching as an art history student. And I figured if I also go to Leiden as an art history student, it could be enriching as an IR student with, you know, all the international courts there and, and the international organizations there. So so those were kind of my options. But really, the only one that worked out was Sciences Po, and I'm glad that it was that one. Mm-hmm. It sounds like it was the ideal situation. Yeah. No, and I'm glad it was one semester because I'm very glad to be back here in St. Andrews. It's mm-hmm. It's been great. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so your classes, were they in French or English? So I was taking four in English and two in French. Okay. So then the ones in French, were those with French students? Yeah. So in, in the two French classes that I was taking, I was the only one or one of the few exchange students. And, and they were a little different. Mm-hmm. So was that kind of a good way for you to meet locals and... Well, you know, it, I, I did meet locals, but it was very hard to hang out with them outside of the academic context because we did get assigned to the same, you know, we had group projects and things like that. So was, that was a great way of meeting locals. Uh, but, you know, it's very closed off in Sciences Po because basically exchange students just come and go. And so you kind of have your friends full time and the exchange students just happen to be there. So exchange students actually ended up hanging out with other exchange students. But I was very lucky to have other friends that I had met when I was doing an internship in London. I met a lot of French friends, mm. and they were all now living in Paris, working or doing their masters or whatever. So those were more like my local friends, and they took me to do all the local stuff. Okay, cool. And is that kind of how you, in your article, you talk a lot about French perspectives on like politics? Is that where that came from with your local friends? Yes, because some of them are going into the defense community. And so particularly one of my friends that I met in London, um, she was the one that really talked about the Franco-German partnership going down because she was involved in kind of all the work that went with the arms sales that had failed um, and and all that stuff. Uh, But I did get some interesting perspectives within the classroom setting as well uh, at Sciences Po. Okay, cool. I was just wondering that because I know like it feels like in St. Andrews we have people who study abroad here and I feel like I never really see them or I never get to know them outside of exactly like what you said, a classroom setting. I mean, and I'll say because this this year I signed up to be a kind of like a study abroad buddy for the people that are coming in. Oh, wow. And they're also like traveling and they're doing so many great things. And, you know, even though I'm like, hey, like when you want to meet whatever, you know, they're always like traveling and stuff. And yeah. And so they're doing their own thing. But I think St. Andrews is more welcoming than Sciences Po for, for international students and exchange students because 
in Sionspo, a lot of the students are Parisians and they live there. You know, they go home every night to their parents' house. Mm. Whereas here, no one really is from here. You know, we do have Scottish students, but many of them aren't from like St. Andrews, right? You know, they come from West Scotland or other parts of Scotland. And so that's how everyone just kind of comes from somewhere else. And, and if you try hard, you can actually reach out easier here. Yeah, totally. I completely agree. Um, so just to kind of recap your article, you frame it around several different aspects of Paris as a city, but also parts of life as a student of international relations. So you have different sections. Um, one is on the cost of living and energy crises. One is on what it's like to observe the war in Ukraine and Parisians' response to it. Um, something called the G3, which we will get into, the Franco-German Partnership and President Macron. Yeah. So, um, and there was actually another section that was meant to be included on on the radical people in Paris and like oh, the yeah. radical ideas that you learn about and that you meet. But we had to cut that because it was too long. Oh, really? Okay, yeah. that's really interesting because I have a question that kind of relates to that, and I want to hear your perspective on it. So, don't let me forget to come back to that. Sure. So, Paris is a city that's famous for many things, namely, off the top of my head, culture, artists, and it's basically just like a tourist magnet of the world. Um, but you depict the city in your article as a powerhouse of international relations and political and, and international discussion. So something I'm wondering is why is Paris such a center for this kind of international discussion and policy? Or do you think it was more the setting of where you were with Sciences Po being such a big school for IR? It's definitely not just Sciences Po because, you know, here in St. Andrews we have a big IR school, but you wouldn't say that St. Andrews is, you know, that kind of global international politics center. Mm -hmm. uh, but no, Paris definitely is a very important city diplomatically. It has a very active diplomatic life. For, stars, for starters, the government of, of France is very important. France has a lot of uh, very important bilateral relationships for a lot of countries. Their most, embassy, most important embassy is the French embassy. It's a big hub for the EU. It's a big hub for a lot of um, African activities, a lot of uh, Iranian activities, a lot of other Middle Eastern activities. You know, they all these uh, diasporas coalesce in Paris. Um, there's a lot of – so from, from stars, it's a very cosmopolitan city. And, you know, you get all these really important bilateral visits. So I remember at Sciences Po, it was like – every week there would be like a president or a foreign minister or someone like that coming to speak. Wow. You know, here in Sanders, that would be really special. But, you know, and, and I remember one day, like I was going to class and I couldn't get through because the president of Colombia was going to speak. And I was like, oh my God, another one. Like, you know, and, and, and so, you know, you, you do have that. And on top of that, you have very important international organizations that have their headquarters in Paris. So you have the headquarters of UNESCO, uh, the headquarters of the OECD, you have the headquarters of, of many other international organizations. So um, you'll also see that countries have embassies and they also have permanent missions to those international organizations. So just the sheer amount of diplomats is crazy. Um, and so that makes the city kind of the center for particularly EU politics. But, you know, there there are summits, there are presidents, there are leaders, you know, there's that kind of international political moment. And, and I think you know, we tend to think of a lot of these countries, uh, France, the UK, Germany, you know, they're not as relevant in IR. You know, the only real international city right now is like New York or whatever. But no, in reality, Paris is is way up there. Okay. 
Yeah, because don't they also say French is the language of diplomacy? I think it is still the language of diplomacy. Mm -hmm. uh, it is still used very much, um, very much so, yeah. Okay, that's super interesting. Um, so you talk a lot in your article about something called the G3, which is a term coined by Professor Stephanie Baum, who is the Dean of Colleges of Sciences at Sciences Po. Um, so for those of us who don't study international relations and haven't attended Sciences Po, what is this concept of the G3? So I think this is one of the most exciting things that I learned about because it's one of those IR terms that are developing and that might actually become relevant in, in the real sphere. And so basically the G3 is the U.S., the European Union, and China. Um, and this comes from a joke uh, when when Professor Baum was was abroad in China. She She does a lot of work in China. Her colleagues in China uh, were talking about an upcoming G20 summit, and they said, oh, yeah, the G20, it's G2 plus zero because it's the U.S. and China, and everyone else doesn't matter. And so what she was trying to say is that, no, in reality, you know, the EU is kind of this rising superpower that's going to come in between the U.S. and China and provide that third pillar of global great power, you know, superpower management, basically. Okay. So the mindset of the G20, where the two is the U.S. and China and zero is the European Union, how common do you think that that mindset is? And do you think there's a culture of mistrust towards the U.S. or China, and China or perhaps a negative outlook about France's position in the, on the world stage, or not just France, but the EU? I think well, what we were taught in that class is that both the U.S. and China very much have that mentality. I don't know if that's true. I think it's, it's a big generalization. Um, but, you know, when, when you're looking at the news and, 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 and all that stuff, the U.S.-China relation is one of the most important um, in, that we study in IR right now. And all the big articles in newspapers that, that even non-IR people read tend to, you know, circulate around the relationship. Even within the EU, not as many people stop to think about the EU relation with China, you know, separate from the U.S. Or, you know, I guess there's a lot of talk about the EU-U.S. relation, but it's it's not seen as a symmetrical relation. Um, and I think it's the EU certainly has a case. It, it, one of the things that we kept talking about was the domestic, um, basically, issues that it has to deal with before it can ascend to become that um, united, you know, world power. But I do think that the EU is increasingly making a name for itself. And we do overestimate how much the U.S. and the EU agree. And we underestimate how much the U.S., the, the China and the EU cooperate. Um, I guess the most important thing um, that Professor Baum said, you know, what's more scary when the U.S. and China disagree or when they agree? And, you know, because sometimes they agree on things that the rest of the world doesn't necessarily agree. Uh, and so that's that's what really drew me into that concept. I think especially for middle powers in the global south, uh, the G3 is going to become a really interesting way of looking at global power management and, and international relations. Wow. Cool. <laughs> this is also, like, not necessarily new to me, but it's just so different from what I, like, study because I do modern history and English. So this is a lot of insight for me, so it's cool to learn about. Um, so another section of your article was about the Franco-German partnership. Can you explain a little bit of what this partnership is, how old it is, and how much did you know about it before being a student at Sciences Po? Well, the, the Franco-German partnership, it's kind of like this, this marriage that makes up the European Union. 
Uh, it's the most important relation within the European Union. It's basically the the motor of of the EU. And so it's really important because then again, we come back to the G3 and we're saying, okay, the EU is this new cohesive power. But actually, kind of counter to that point, you look at a declining Franco-German relation. Uh, and, and that's not... I would say entirely their fault, but it's just the situations that they've been put in have kind of pushed them a little apart. So basically, it, this is a very old partnership. It, it comes from after World War II. Uh, France and West Germany at the time uh, started, you know, developing economic relations. You know, also at, at the U.S.'s, I would say, encouragement through the Marshall Plan, France became very active in the development of West Germany and you know slowly there was the 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 european you know communities that evolved into the european union and so you have this idea of france and germany coming together and bringing all of europe together with them um and so that's and what i learned before that basically in, in middle school and whatnot a basic you know 20th century history is that this was kind of like the end of war the end of uh you know security dilemmas in in central europe and western europe uh, were, were kind of sold by this Franco-German partnership and that increasingly they were going to kind of coalesce into the ever closer union as the European Union as a whole because it's really hard to see the European Union surviving without that Franco-German partnership uh, because it's it's also a very multidimensional partnership. It's mm-hmm. it's economics, it's it's cultural, it's defense, it's it's many things. And so I think particularly in the defense side is where recently um, – Germany has decided not to buy French weapons, but to buy basically weapons from everyone else, the U.S., Israel, the U.K., uh, which is not great for the French defense industry that wants those contracts. Or, you know, France is trying to build more aircraft carriers and they want the, you know, the Germans to come in with them and basically pay for that. And Germany's not really interested. You know, they they don't really want to pay for that. And that's really disappointing for the French because the French – and the Germans had this rivalry before, and, and they were able to overcome that to come together. But it does seem that Germany still has a lot of realpolitik in how it approaches its partnership with France. It's not really, um, I guess, a symmetrical marriage from the French point of view. Yeah. So do you think, like, if that partnership were ever to kind of disintegrate completely, what do you think that would mean for the EU as a whole? I think that would be the end of the EU. Um, either it would revert back to some kind of forum or, you know, but you, you definitely cannot have uh, a common market or a cohesive defense structure without both France and Germany on board. I mean, because there are other many important countries in the EU. You have France, you have Spain, you know, which are also really important pillars. But the thing is, basically, Germany's economic motor is vital for the for the functioning of the European Union and its common market. And France's diplomatic power, its reach, its defense um, industry, all of that is also very important. So you kind of need both mm-hmm. and you need it to work. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. So, yeah, so you mentioned um, in your article where you were at like a – you call it a soiree. Um, yeah. Where one of your friends – had just taken a job at the French Ministry of, Def- of Defense and disapproved of Germany 
for buying American and Israeli weapons, which you just mentioned, rather than French weapons. And across the table from the two of you was another friend who was about to start their PhD in Germany. And you write, in fact, everyone at that soiree had partaken in some kind of partnership between nations, whether formal or informal. So is that really common that everyone has this kind of connection between France and Germany? Or do you think it was kind of the niche, like, IR study abroad crowd who you were hanging out with? No, because this guy who's doing his PhD, he's doing his PhD in theoretical physics. I think especially the science community, you do see a lot of that power of the Franco-German partnership because you have the brightest minds from both countries coming together um, and they're creating really interesting things through the, you know, the European Space Agency, um, you know, the, the particle accelerators, all those things that they have. Those are all products of the Franco-German partnership. So I guess at that moment, the defense community in France was very disappointed by Germany's basically decision to not buy French weapons. But, you know, I, as I'm saying, I think I, th I actually thought that was a little ridiculous um, how she was saying that the Franco-German partnership was dead. I mean, she was just mad at the moment. But what I was trying to say with that is that it's it's just such a fact of life. It's such a big part of reality. Everyone moves around that border. There's just so much uh, economic activity, so much um, scientific educational activity that in reality, the Franco-German partnership is not dead. It, it reminds us how important it is. And I think that... Um, Germany could do a little bit more to show that – to show to the French basically that they are excited about this partnership as well and they want to they wanna support it. Um, but basically, I don't think it's going anywhere in the short term. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. I thought that was just a, a funny moment of yeah. that interaction. Um, so another section of your article is the city of Macron. And um, so you write that Macron is not a polarizing figure – but the viewpoints of the people you seem to have spoken to were. You write, many students at Sciences Po wanted to see a France led by the socialists and the extreme left. Others seemed to be drawn by the calls of the traditional Republican Party and the extreme forces to its right. So someone who is not a French native, how much of an accurate gauge do you think you were able to gather in regards to the political beliefs of the French during your time there? Well, I think my... my Reality was a little skewed because I was in Paris, and Paris is not all of France, so I'll mm -hmm. say that first. And even though there were, you know, students coming from other parts of France, it's still, you know, the Sciences Po Parisian crowd. So I guess you're more bound to go to the extremes in that case. Um, but it's true. I mean, I wouldn't say that he's not polarizing. A lot of people have strong opinions about Macron. It's true. Uh, but, you know, he's not as polarizing as, you know, other figures. So, for example, if he had someone that was in the extreme right, the extreme left wouldn't like it, and vice versa. Mm -hmm. Whereas Macron, as I said, it's kind of lukewarm. So some people are like, okay, like, it could be worse, and I'm not really satisfied with the way things are, but I'm kind of okay with it. And and that's really a sense that I got. And I do think it's quite an accurate sense of what, what France is like with Macron right now. Although, you know, if, and if you look at his approval ratings, they're they're a little low, uh, but I don't think that reflects a, a real disdain for him. It's just kind of a, a lack of excitement. Mm -hmm. But this is a very unique phenomenon. I don't think that it will be easily replicated. I think that after he leaves, either the left or the right will take power and you will see a little bit more polarization because it's also not a very cohesive ideological movement that he's backing. You know, there's no platform of Macron. Macron is, I guess, he's more pragmatic and there are no clear successors 
in in that sense. So I think you, in, in in the coming elections, which there's still time, but you know there will be a little bit of of either going to the to the left or to the right. Mm-hmm. So then the section that you mentioned earlier that had to get cut out of your article for a word count, I guess. Yeah. Um, does that relate to this? The, you were talking about the extreme left, right? Yeah. So well, I mean. And, and I'm and I'm saying this also from a skewed perspective because I like to think of myself as a moderate or whatever, but don't everyone think of themselves as a moderate, right? No yeah. one says. <laughs> but you know, Paris is a really interesting place for ideas. I think, and I, as I wanted to say in the article, more than anywhere else in what I call the Anglosphere, so like the U.S. or the U.K., I had never heard ideas so radical, so wild, so different. Like it was like all kinds of ideas. You know, mm. they're, they're different to me. Um, these were not necessarily ideas from French students. They were from other international students who had basically ideas on how the entire world should be run. Um, I don't think that anyone that I spoke to from France actually had um, crazy ideas about the, or, or I would say radical ideas about the management of France. They were either say, you know, I support this party or I support that party. But within the Sphere of Sciences Po, you know, when we were in these courses on, on law, on whatever, you know, you'd hear these ideas of like, um, you know, that I'd never even heard of before. I was really exposed to a lot of things that I hadn't even considered um, that are that are really interesting. I would say they're not mainstream ideas. That's mm-hmm. what I'm, I'm really trying to get at. And, and these, I guess, underground for me, ideas were very interesting, um, but not necessarily related to Macron's situation or, or, or France's political future. I think just Paris is a place where a lot of really interesting people meet and they share their ideas and they're really interesting, really yeah. out there. Yeah, I totally agree. So were these ideas from students mostly or teachers or everybody? Everybody, everybody. I mean, even I myself found, I I started saying, you know, things that I usually would consider a little bit more radical from what I think. I start, you know, feeling a little more comfortable with sharing that. And and it's interesting because there will be people that would completely disagree with you and you were able to engage in really interesting debates Mm-hmm. Whereas, for example, here I think here in San Andreas we have interesting ideas, but they're not nearly as what you would call radical. You know, people are more uh, more mainstream with what they think. Obviously, there's there's some circles that that are not, but but in Paris it was just like everyone had these like crazy you know out there ideas, and I thought that was awesome. Yeah, that is awesome. I think also to your point about St. Andrews, like I think that at least I feel like St. Andrews is a place for kind of you come in and it's very easy to hang out with, like as an American, it's very easy to hang out with like just the Americans coming yeah. in and, and a very niche international circle. And I feel like kind of everybody, it, either everybody has the same views or or similar views or we just don't talk about them. Yeah. I don't know. And I wish that there was more interchange of like very interesting different ideas absolutely i mean and i think a lot of people do this in their tutorials you know you don't really steer the pot in your essays you might write what's easier to write as opposed to what you actually think for a better Mm -hmm. grade or just so you don't have to you know go into a really deep research session Uh, but you'd be surprised you know i think for example here in st andrews the school of philosophy is really good at that and the school of philosophy people are really good about sharing these really interesting ideas and, and kind of far-fetched. I think it's the one that's most out there. But international relations, particularly in the tutorials, you never hear anything that's kind of head-turning, at least in my experience. But you're right. It would be nice if we had more of that. I wish 
you know, I wish we could foster that a bit more. Yeah. And I wonder if that's also like about how we get graded on the two essays that we turn in a semester. Well, but, you know, the other thing is that's why I love things like like being in the Roosevelt group, because then I have other areas where I can express myself Mm -hmm. and I can feel a little bit more comfortable with with sharing ideas that might not be very well graded, but that are still, you know, good enough to be published and considered in in new annals or as a quick take or and, and there's many publications here in Sanders. We have the Drew, we have the Foreign Affairs Review, we have State of Affairs. There's a ton of great publications. So I guess it's within the academic setting that we don't see that, but. Perhaps in, it, there could be a, a potential in all these other societies mm-hmm. to, to explore that avenue. Totally. I completely agree. I think it's so interesting to just observe how, because there are, frankly, a lot of resources that we don't get academically, how that kind of comes across within the student culture. Like, there's no school of arts. Well, like, there is academically, but not, like, really um, – like a visual arts department yeah. or anything like that and and seeing what people come up with whether it's an art publication or or like the fashion shows yeah, or the fashion shows or or, or 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 there's you know there's the art society that they do they do drawing they do painting mm-hmm. they do a lot of great things yeah i guess you're right yeah the students always step in to yeah, fill those gaps totally it's it's i'm like part of me is like are they trying to make us more entrepreneurial and like what we kind of come up with in our free time i don't know um, I mean, I think that's certainly the experience that you get in, in St. Mm-hmm. Andrews, especially in my circle of American friends. We always call it micro-adulting. We're always micro-adulting, you know. So true. Um, because, you're, <laughs> you know, you're planning dinner parties and you're going to class and you're, you know, you're cleaning your flat. You're, you know, you're dealing with like a broken washing machine or whatever. Like, you know, yeah. you're doing all these little things and, and it contributes to that. Yeah, it's very special. <laughs> um, so the last section of your story is titled The City in Darkness. Um, And you state that Paris is, quote, a city that is catching up with the times and trailblazing a new era for the EU. So we kind of covered this already, but this is kind of a different perspective on this point. Why do you think it's Paris doing this as opposed to other European cities or even German cities? Paris is a lot more cosmopolitan. I mean, and, and I, I guess I have to give credit to the other cities. I haven't lived there. I haven't really, I, I don't know what it is on the inside. But to my, from my perspective, you know, there were a lot of Germans there in Paris. There were a lot of people from different parts of the EU. There was a lot of discussion about the EU. The city as, you know, itself felt very enthusiastic about the EU. You know, you had all these EU flags everywhere, um, you know, because you definitely have EU citizens in Paris, who are not necessarily French, who not, don't necessarily speak French, but they come from other European countries, and they're very much about that that EU reality. And I think Paris right now, uh, and I have to give Macron a little bit of credit for that. It's experiencing, uh, you know, a little bit of an economic boom. There's a lot of startups. There's a lot of technology. There's a lot of uh, economic activity. There's a lot of talent, you know, kind of going into Paris. And that's not something that every city in Europe can say, unfortunately. I mean, especially if you look at the UK right now. Uh, some people are talking about like a brain drain and all these things. I certainly don't think that's the case in Paris at all. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I was really impressed with the caliber of the people that I met. Uh, you know, there was construction everywhere. They were fixing everything, you know, getting everything ready for the Olympics next year. But, you know, oh, wow. just as a whole, you know, the whole city is just kind of, you know, really full of energy. Because, and again, going back to that book of Metropolis, it, a few of the chapters, you know, they talk quite a bit about Paris and, and the different 
you know, faces of Paris across time. And if you look at something like the Reign of Terror, absolutely not what you're looking at right now. Or the different revolutions, or I guess even like during World War II, you know, Paris could have been at, at times a depressing place, a decadent place. Um, but again, you know, it has these these golden eras. And I, I think it, this could definitely be like a golden era for Paris. I mean, mm-hmm. even when I was there during Fashion Week and all the fashion shows were like popping up around the city, you know, there's just so such energy. And the things work, you know, the, the services work, the streets are clean, um, they're safe, you know. It's, and so, you know, I, I certainly felt like, you know, even though there was this whole kind of gloomy – oh, you know, energy is really expensive and we need to shut off the lights and everything. At the same time, there's this kind of energy in Paris right now. You go there and you do feel like you're in the center of the world, that everything's going on, that, you know, there's the art, there's the fashion, there's the politics, there's the the food, there's the, the people, the ideas. And so it's, it's a very stimulating place to be in. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's why I kind of felt like, you know, all the Parisians, whether they're French, whether they're these EU citizens, whether they're these exchange students, uh, they all make the city shine through the darkness of of the sobriety plan that has, you know, the Eiffel Tower shutting off very mm-hmm. early. <laughs> yeah. How long is that lasting for? I don't know if it's still going, actually. I think they, they've been able to work it out. Also, as the tourist season starts to pick up, I think they'll start turning it on again. Um, I was there a couple of weeks ago again, so I actually went back. Uh, and actually, the Paris that I wrote about is, is kind of gone already. Because uh, when I went back, there were already like strikes and things going on. And I hadn't seen oh, any yeah. strikes when I was there. Um, but but I do think that they're not as bad in terms of the sobriety plan anymore. I think they're they're a little bit more back to normal. Okay. Wow. That was so beautiful and inspirational, everything you just said about Paris. Well, and, and you know, the original title, so we had to play around with it because the original title was uh, – Paris étant, which basically means like Paris, like Paris off, like like when you turn off the lights, mm-hmm. uh, and basically saying like the city of light goes dark, and they said, oh, that's that's too gloomy. Like we have to say something different. So we we went for a beacon in the in the night. Um, mm-hmm. But in reality, you know, despite it, you know, you know, this it was the city of light. You know, and and, and before the lights went off, it's magical. You know, the city it's glowing and it's beautiful. And then the lights go off and, and, and it gets a little sad. But then, you know, you still have to carry on and you meet all these great people. And, and so, you know, you still have that energy going even after the lights go off at like 11 p.m. or whenever it is. Yeah. And I mean, Paris is such a resilient city. Like what you just listed, the things it's gone through historically. And it's it still comes back every single time and and has seen so many different eras and historical occurrences and is still so relevant. Yeah. You know. Absolutely. No, and I and I really think that there's something for everyone in Paris as well. Uh mm-hmm. because I I had a very specific side of it. You know, there were another as far as I know, another three uh, exchange students for St. Andrews IR and they all had very different experiences, you know. If if you asked them to write a similar article, they would probably write something completely different too. Really? Uh, because, you know, there's there's these different faces to the city, you know, the, the the four or five things that I mentioned, the four or five faces of the city that I kind of talked about in my article, mm-hmm. you know, they might, you know, have experienced a little bit of one or the other. But, you know, there's, you know, maybe they were really into jazz and they experienced like the jazz scene or they were really into, I don't know, the sports and like they went to the Parc des Princes and all that stuff. You know, there, there's so much to do. There's so much for everyone there. Yeah, I do. I love Paris so much. I need to go back soon. Um, so just to wrap up, yep. 
what do you want those who read your article to understand that might not have yet been spoken about since we've been talking? Well, I want the the big thing is that I want to say, you know, Paris, it's not always the Paris syndrome. It's not always, you know, I mean, it is. it can be magical, really. You know, like the movies, they're onto something. The books, they're mm-hmm. onto something. Uh, because I would say there can be a little bit of a negative uh, reputation for Paris sometimes. And I wholeheartedly disagree. Uh, I think that Paris can be romanticized if you go with the right attitude. If you plan ahead, too, right? Because there's no fun in, like, you know, missing your buses and not knowing what hotel to stay in or where to eat, you know, it it does help a lot to have a little bit of of planning uh, to make your experience better. But yeah, basically, you know, and, and, you know, the different things that I touched then that, you know, the the Franco-German partnership, it is important and it's not as strong as many people think it is, but it's still resilient or like the G3, you know, the European Union, it's, it's really rising. It's really going somewhere. And, and Paris kind of reflects that too. Or, or something like, um, I don't know, the, 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 the resilience, so how involved it is with the Ukraine war, how, how, much, how, sol- how much solidarity there is uh, in the city. Because th- there's so many things that you kind of imagine, oh, it must be this way or that way. And, I, you know, I had my preconceptions. I thought that I was going to be, you know, getting a little bit of Paris syndrome, that it wasn't going to be, you know, that big of a deal, the whole politics out of it. And it ended up challenging my own preconceptions of the city. So that's why I wanted to share these these sides of the city to say, hey, you know, th- I thought it was going to be this way. In reality, you know, this is how it is. It's actually a lot more interesting, a lot more nuanced. And that's kind of what I want to get across, that Paris is not just – I mean, whatever you think it is, it's probably even more than that. I don't know if that's mm-hmm. that's taking it too far. Uh, but, yeah, that's that's certainly what I want people to think, to, to challenge the preconceptions of the city – and not just from the tourist side of it, but also, you know, it's it's political importance, um, it's it's prosperity, it's it's current situation. It's something really worth looking into. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Mauricio. Thank you for having me. For those of you listening, you can now find Mauricio's article as well as all the other articles we've talked about on the podcast on our website in PDF form at roosevelt-group.org. As always, be sure to check out our social media at The Roosevelt Group on Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Thanks so much for listening, and see you next time.